Uh, good morning, church. Ah, good to see your beautiful faces. I love seeing you guys just greeting people. Hope you feel the love if you're visiting us today. Um, all right. Uh, yep. You know, there's a reason why pastors wear black pants. And uh, if you can't tell, I was enjoying my coffee a little too much. And, uh, yep, spilled it all over my pants. So there you go. Um, but I'll tell you, there is an incredible espresso bean at the cafe now that will knock your socks off. An Ethiopian bean. You just smell it, and you feel invigorated and caffeinated. So go check it out. Well, I want to welcome you guys. And before we jump into the message, I just want to go walk you through just a quick little community moment together. And I want to start by just saying thank you for your generosity as a church. I think if, uh, you know how individuals can have spiritual gifts, I think for us as a church, I think one of our gifts, spiritual gifts, has to be generosity. You are just such a generous church. I want to thank you for all the ways that you helped make kids' games happen. Uh, just, just hundreds of volunteers making that happen. Thank you for all the ways you guys volunteer out there as ushers, uh, helping out with the children's ministry, setting up tables, being a leader in some group, like leading a community group or leading uh, a men's skills or a women's skills. And all the ways that you give of your time, your relational energy, thank you. And secondly, you, if you're new to our church, you may look around and think, oh, this is just happens on its own. It does not. And maybe some of you are kind of new to our church, and I just want to encourage you that as you are thinking about, is this your home church? I want to invite you to be a part of this team and to invest in what God is doing it in this community. This community stands on the generosity of its members. And so I want to encourage you, if you um, have never been invited to be a part of our church and to be giving to our church, I want to show you this, this um, graphic real quick. I want you to see that we are take very seriously financial transparency. And as you think about financially giving to this church, I want you to know you can go online and you can see the percent breakdown of where your giving goes. You can also go online and you go, hey, is this church legit? What are they doing with that money? You can go see our online audit reports. We get very high marks with our audits, and um, you can go online and see it for yourself. Um, but you can also sign up and become a part of this community. I want to encourage you. Think about that. We would love for you to join the team and help us be a light on a hill that cannot be hidden in. Even if you started with 1%, just 1% giving, you know, give, giving, you can make a difference. So thanks, everybody. All right, with that, um, let's get into the scripture. Here we go. We are in Revelation. And if you are new to our church, don't run for the hills. I promise this is not going to be scary. Um, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, is the letter to the church of Philadelphia, the only church that Jesus does not rebuke. Wow, so take a deep sigh. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. 
Now, this is where we celebrate. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, um, you know, as we dive into this, the book of Revelation is geared to help us see our everyday life through a decidedly supernatural spiritual perspective, right? Naturally, it's easy for us to see the material, physical aspects of our life, the everyday concrete circumstances we are in. Revelation is uniquely designed to help us see life, but to see it for its full truth, its whole reality. Now, I want to start with this idea at the very beginning. All the letters are addressed to an angel. So at some point, we got to talk about that. Let's do that today. What is up with the angels? Why is every letter written to an angel? And I want to talk about angels for a minute, okay? Um, number one, the Greek word for angel is angelos. Oh, surprise. Like, boom, there it is. Easy. And it literally means messenger. It's sometimes used of human messengers, and sometimes that word angelos is used of like the ones we think of normally, the supernatural beings, right? Um, it's used of John the Baptist. He's an angelos because he's a messenger of Jesus's coming, but it's also a way of describing these angelic supernatural beings. Now, the way that it's used here by Jesus in addressing these churches is taken by different meanings by scholars. It could mean that Jesus is addressing the angel of the churches he's referencing, the pastor of the church. It could be the couriers, the messengers who take his letter to those churches. Or it could be he's addressing the supernatural being, the angel, assigned to that church. Now, that's the one I favor. I want to tell you why, and then we'll see what this has to do with our message today. I want to just help you understand the ancient view of angels, the, the biblical view of angels. Number one, angels were um, assigned, wait, go back to one, yeah. Angels were these supernatural beings that had assignments. They were assigned to regions. Anyone here, a regional director, regional manager, right? Think, or think of like a regional director of some sort, right, for God's kingdom. They're assigned to regions, right? You can see that in Daniel 12, 1, with Michael the archangel who is assigned to the people of God, but the prince of Persia, who he's contending with, is this spiritual being that has some kind of authority base in a region. Number two, angels are assigned to people, very specifically. Check this one out. Go to the next slide. Angels, like in Hebrew 1.14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So angels are assigned to people to help us, to serve and minister to us. Isn't that an interesting thought? Scriptures are full of references to these angels helping us. Psalm 91, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Now look at Matthew 18.10, Jesus' own words. Um, all the kids in the house, you're going to love this. Jesus is talking about children. It's a metaphor for his followers who are childlike. But yes, it certainly also references children. Look at this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that they're angels in heaven. Look at that possessive 
before the angel. Their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. And when Peter is arrested and he's going to be killed, the believers start praying for Peter's release. Well, an angel shows up, unlocks the, the gates to his prison. He gets out. He goes to the door of his friend's house. He knocks on the door. Someone goes to the door and they look through the peephole and they see Peter and they freak out and they run back in. They tell everybody, it's Peter at the door. She just leaves him there. And they're like, it can't be Peter. He's in prison. It must be his, his angel. Yeah, so angels are assigned to people. This is the notion of guardian angels. And then thirdly, go back to the previous slide. They can be assigned to tasks, like Gabriel, who's assigned the task of Jesus' birth. And all things related to his birth, Gabriel is involved. With Zechariah, when he announces that he's going to have his son John the Baptist, or when Mary receives the revelation, it's Gabriel again. So regions, people, tasks. Now, why does Jesus address angel, the angel of a church? What significance could that have? Now think about it. As they get this letter, the believers are reading this. Can you imagine? To the angel of North Coast Calvary Chapel. Hmm. You know, instantly, to the, to the angel of, now fill in the blank of your last name, your home. To the angel of the Pfeiffer home. You getting the feel of it a little bit? See, it anchors the church in the spiritual, supernatural reality of their identity, right? Because see, a church is more than a bunch of people who get together for an old habit and hobby of reading a 2,000-year book club. You know, church is not a 2,000-year book club. It is not just people getting together for a social event. It is not the chair you're sitting on or the walls around us. A church is the bride of Christ we are the presence of God on earth. We have a spiritual supernatural identity and we are represented in heaven. And get this, we are heaven's representatives on earth. So what we do on earth is being backed up by all the resources and power of heaven. Now that, my friends, is what Revelation wants to do for you this morning. Revelation wants to give you a spiritual perspective on your everyday life. I'm hoping that we can do that together this morning. Now, um, so yes, let me just state very unequivocally, we believe in a spiritual reality of life. We believe here, brace yourself, we believe in angels. We believe in demons, we believe they're real. We believe in a Satan, we believe in a God, and we believe that Jesus Christ died, was resurrected, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's good news for us who believe that. For those of us who don't, you're like, oh my gosh, I am in a cult. I need to get out of here, you know. These guys are crazy. And in this modern world, this 21st century world of technology and science, it's hard to believe that there's more to reality than the laws of physics can explain to us. But there is. And the immediately presenting world does not tell us all there is to reality. Because I don't know about you, but the idea that the Earth is at the center of the, of, the, of the solar system is pretty convincing because it's the sun that moves through the sky. Are you not with me? And so what was immediately presenting to our eyes was deceiving. You could not intuit that the Earth sat in a position rotating around the sun. And that shift of perspective revolutionized the world, the Copernican Revolution. But the same is true about spiritual reality. 
Our lives are created to revolve around God. And there is a spiritual reality that is intertwined with your life. So let's get into it a little bit. Let's find out what the Bible says about it. In verse 1, it says this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Now, this is a description of Jesus. And he holds the key. It's a symbol of authority that Jesus has. And when it says the key of David, right, it's meant to us to think of David's kingdom when he was king over Israel, and that was a foreshadow of the kingdom of God, God's government coming to earth. Now, what is God's kingdom? It is the reign of God's will on earth as it is in heaven, and that, my friends, has started to invade the earth through Jesus and his people. The will of God has come to earth and is like yeast, spreading its way through the earth with forgiveness for our enemies, for faith in a resurrection, and for the incredible truth that by faith in Jesus, we are saved. And it's spreading through the world over two billion strong. From just a little room of like 120 people 2,000 years ago. This reality, the reality of your life is held in Jesus' hands in four ways in this passage. Jesus holds the key to your vindication to your strength, to your future, and to your identity. And I want to unpack these with you right now. Jesus holds the key to the reality of our life. And he wants to give you a perspective of your life that is supernatural. Let's start with vindication. Verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, let's start with this idea of the synagogue of Satan. So there was a synagogue in the city of Philadelphia, and the, the Christians at the time were starting their witness with the synagogue, with other Jews, because there were a lot of Christian Jews who were sharing their faith with their fellow Jewish brethren in the synagogue, and the synagogue had rejected them and had stated, you guys are false believers. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They had closed their doors to them and had kicked them out and were saying, you are not true believers of God. Now, why does Jesus use this phrase, synagogue of Satan? This is not a racial slur against Jews. Jesus was Jewish, right? And a lot of these believers are Jewish. So that's not what Jesus is talking about. Actually, it's a way of Jesus reframing the way that these early Christians were seeing their enemies. I want to show you how. By calling them a synagogue of Satan, he wasn't trying to insult them. He was trying to help them understand the nature of, of resistance that they were experiencing and where their true enemy lies. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 6. Take your stand against the what? The devil's schemes. Now, right? We're talking about a spiritual reality of life. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Have you ever had a hard time believing in the spiritual forces of life? Is it hard to kind of grapple? Do you feel a little bit like, you know, looking at the sun, it's hard to believe that it's at the center? You ever struggle with that? You ever struggle with thinking the earth is still flat? You know, people still do. It's not intuitive. But I want to talk about spiritual forces of evil. Uh, I was reading through the Bible, and I was struck by how much angels are a part of the Bible. And I remember one time just praying, God, I'm going to see an angel. I'm not a big angel guy, you know. 
Um, I don't have any angel pillows or angel decor in my home. But I was, I was like, God, I want to see an angel. So many people saw angels. So I prayed a simple prayer. I just closed my Bible. I just prayed, Lord, I would love to see an angel somewhere at some point. Would you show one to me? I know. Try it sometime. Right there, man. I got a phone call. I'm not joking. It was like that, that. Boom. I got a call. My wife's on the phone. She's like, you will never believe what just happened. My children are about, my oldest son is probably like in third or fourth grade. She's driving him home from school at the time that I pray this prayer. And she gives the phone to Diego. And Diego goes, Papa, when we were driving home, I looked out the window and I see right now a huge angel following our car with his sword drawn. And he's flying next to us to protect us. My third grade son. Oh, yeah, you're thinking, well, I was a third grader, Ryan. Why are you listening to that guy? But I'm telling you right now, remember what Jesus said about the little ones. Don't mock the little ones. Sometimes they see more clearly than we do. And secondly, how do you explain the crazy coincidence of me praying to see an angel, which I had never done, never been curious about angels. There I am. All right, Lord, show me an angel. Boom. Apparently I wasn't worthy, but my son was. (laughs) There are spiritual forces at work in your life and around us in the world. Why does that have practical value in this moment to see your enemy, not as the flesh and blood person in front of you, but but to see the spiritual force of evil at work? Listen to this. Our enemy is not the person we disagree with. Our enemy is the spirit behind the false ideas opposing God's truth. Our enemy is not the person who opposes us, and that frees us. When we see that they are not our true enemy, It frees us in two ways. It frees us to love our enemy, to bless those who persecute us, and secondly, to pray for every person who opposes the truth of God, to pray that God would minister to them and open their eyes to his goodness. And that's a shift of perspective, a redirection of our anger and our hatred because we want to hate the perpetrator of evil in our life. But the root cause of evil is not that person, although they are responsible. It is the spiritual powers behind it. The word Satan in the Greek is satanas, and it literally means accuser, slanderer, and adversary. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying these Jews, you know, this synagogue of Satan, he's using that term Satan not to insult them or say they're such bad people, they are Satan. No, no, no. He's trying to capture that idea. No, they're accusations against you are false and they are deceptive. They are lies. You are my people. And even though you're being rejected by your own family, by your own people, I'm here to tell you that that rejection is from the enemy. And it's not the truth about who you are. Because sometimes the people of God will suffer accusation and slander and false judgments because of what we believe. Not because we go out and we're mean, we do bad things in the name of God, although that happens too, because we're imperfect. But sometimes just by holding true to biblical faith and teaching, people will view us as prejudiced, as narrow-minded, as superstitious. And Jesus is saying, those are lies. Those are accusations. So see them for what they are. Okay, number two. Um, He says, I will make them fall down at your feet. So what is Jesus saying? I'm going to make your enemy come down and bow down and grovel at your feet. Maybe there's somebody in your life you would like to see that happen to. You know, don't nudge the person next to you. But in all seriousness, when you're facing opposition on the soccer field, in the classroom, or in life, even in our own home, 
When we are facing opposition, when someone is against us, we can fall into the temptation to want revenge and to want them to grovel at our feet and to admit we're right and they're wrong. Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever felt that way, that urge, oh, if I could just show you how wrong you are? You know, wouldn't that just feel so good? You know, nursing a little anger fantasy? Come on now. Come on, it happens every day if you drive in the city, especially here in the summer. <laughs> all, you know, all the, all the visitors. God bless them. But what if this means something different? It's not about people groveling at our feet. It is about people coming to us and seeing us in a whole new light, seeing us the way that God sees us and not the way they had seen us previously. Look at this. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, do you remember this story? 400 years they were slaves. And there came a moment where God wanted to deliver them. They were saying, let us go and worship God. And the Egyptians said, no, you will not go. You were lazy slaves. And they gave them more work. Well, God brought 10 plagues and God was delivering his people. But there's this little verse that's really fascinating. The way that God changed their hearts towards God's people. Look at this, Exodus 12, 36. The Lord had made the Egyptians, what? favorably disposed. It wasn't just they were strong-armed into releasing them. It was a change of heart. Favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So get this. So they plundered the Egyptians. Literally, the Egyptians were giving God's people like gold and silver. Hey, here you go. No, go on and get out of here. And they were giving them everything that they had as they left. Let me ask you this. Is there someone in your life that you are in contention with that you need God to bring a change in that dynamic where you need God to give you a favorable disposition with someone who is in opposition to you at your workplace, in your marriage? Maybe your parents. You need favorable disposition that you can go out tonight um, with your friends past 12. I don't know what it is. But in all seriousness, where do we need favorable disposition? The temptation is to want to control and convince people with our words or to become resentful and want revenge. And what Jesus is saying here is, I will vindicate you. Don't take revenge or vindicate yourself. Now, you guys, this is powerful because this means a couple of things for us. Number one, we don't need to have the last word. We don't need to have the last word as if our word is going to change everything. We can trust God and say, God, would you change their minds? God, would you bring peace between us? Change my mind where I am not seeing that person the way that you see them. Number two, we don't need to freak out when we falter in our cause for God. We don't need to throw up our hands and go, oh my gosh, the earth is going to hell in a handbasket. Don't freak out. Revelation is to give us the confidence that Jesus is going to win, and he's in control. Number three, we don't need to change people or control people. And number four, we can be humble in our conviction. Where could you use that perspective? Jesus holds the key to your vindication. He will give you favorable disposition with those who oppose you. For me, it was my dad who thought I was out of my mind for being a Christian. But now, my dad's leading a Bible study at his church in Redlands. Yeah, Jesus got the last laugh on that one. There was a guy that I work out with, and this guy really did not like me. No, seriously, he really did not. He wouldn't even talk to me. He would ignore me when I'd say, hey, what's up? And I kind of was getting bitter about it, and I would ignore him. Oh, I'll ignore you too. So when he'd talk to me about something, I'd ignore him. 
And then I felt kind of convicted. I'm a pastor. What am I doing? <laughs> so I started praying for this guy for three months. I've been praying, seeing no change. But in the last two weeks, man, this guy is starting to smile at me and talk to me. And yes, this last week, we gave each other a fist bump. <laughs> yeah, man, come on. This, something's happening. We were like buddies now. So let God vindicate you. Number two, he has the key to our strength. Verse 10, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus holds the key to our strength. Now, I want to ask you, what does Jesus mean by the hour of trial here? What do you think? Think about it for a minute. What does this hour of trial repre represent? Now, some people will say this is a reference to the great tribulation, that final intense series of contractions that the world will go through in distress as Jesus prepares the world for his return, right? We call it the great tribulation. Check out this verse by Jesus, Mark 13, 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be, okay? Kind of like transition in labor, Right? It's the most painful, intense set of contractions right before the baby comes. It could also just be a reference to the general trials that come upon the earth, like a global pandemic, right? like an economic crisis. I don't know. It could go either way. But what I want to focus on is this right here, this idea of I will keep you from the hour of trial, the idea that Jesus will keep us. Now, this is going to be challenging for some of us, so brace yourself. The Greek here can be translated, I will keep you from trial, or get this, no, this is a legitimate translation too, I will keep you through trial. Do you see the difference in these two statements? One is saying, I'm going to keep you from trial. I am not going to let anything difficult, challenging, painful happen to you. The other one is saying, I am going to keep you through the trial, so that as you go through the trial, you're going to know I'm with you, and I'm going to get you to the other side so that your battle with doubt and unbelief of my goodness, you're going to win and you're going to overcome. You're going to come out more confident that I am good, even when you're in the dark night of your soul, even when things aren't going your way. Now, the reason why I think it's this one is because believers are already suffering. In Revelation 2, Jesus acknowledges that believers are imprisoned, they are suffering, and they are going through awful experiences. And we've seen that for 2,000 years. And I think it's better for us to err on the side of holding that Jesus is talking about keeping us through it. Now, it's possible that when the great tribulation comes, he's going to rapture us and we don't have to deal with it. And I would look forward to that solution. I don't know about you, but we should hope for that. But it's also possible what he's saying is, I am going to keep you through it so that in that trial, you will be a light to the world that even in suffering, I have overcome it all. So that you, like stars in a dark night, shine for all to see the truth of my claim that I have risen from the dead. I think it's that one. And I feel like this morning, we need to be, some of us may need to be strengthened because that's what Jesus wants. Look at this, 1 Peter 5.10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you what? Strong, firm, and steadfast. 
Could you use that this morning? One of the reasons we gather as a church is to strengthen ourselves together in Christ. And maybe this morning you're in a trial that is testing the limits of your belief and trust in God's goodness in your life. And if that's you, I want to invite you just to raise a hand so we can pray for you. If you're going through a trial and you need a fresh infusion of God's strength in your life today, raise your hand. I see you, brother. I see you, Mike. Put your hand in the air so we can all see because as you put your hand up, someone's going, you know what? I'm not alone. Put your hand up in the air. I'm not alone. Someone's with me. It could be a physical trial, an emotional trial, a psychological trial, a relational trial. It could be a trial in your career, trial that you're going through on behalf of someone else and their suffering. Put your hand in the air just for a moment. Put it up high like this. Okay, if you're sitting next to someone with their hand up, would you just put a gentle hand on their shoulder? Say, right here, put your hand up. Put a gentle hand, just a gentle hand. We're going to pray strength into these loved ones. Let's pray right now. Put a hand on the shoulder gently. Here we go. Lord, we just lift up these dear ones in Jesus' name. Lord, we just thank you that there is no trial that is greater than you. And we pray that while they are going through this trial, that you would keep them through it so that they don't give up on their faith that, God, you, in the end, will prevail with your love and goodness for them. And we pray that you strengthen them in the power of the Holy Spirit with strength to stand firm and be steadfast and to know that at the proper time, God, you are going to reward them for waiting on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on. Praise God for that. He holds the key to our vindication. He holds the key to our strength. He also holds the key to our future. Let's talk about the future because sometimes that's the very thing that we become uncertain about in trial. Can God still use me? How is my life going to turn out? What is waiting for me at the other side of this joblessness or this sickness? And it's the fear of the future that Jesus speaks to here in verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I love that word, never. Let's just say never together, never. I mean, it is the promise of forever. At the end of Psalm 23, it ends by saying this, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Me and my kids, we always shout it, no matter where we are. We go, forever, because it's just the most amazing thing that we are going to live forever with God. Because in this life, there are no forevers. Not your loved one, not your health, not your home. My house has been through multiple owners. There is no forever in this life, but in the life that is to come in Christ, it is forever. And you will never be removed from it. And that promise of never is about the permanence that we have, the assurance that we can have in our position and our relationship to God. I love this idea of a pillar. Why does Jesus use that metaphor? Well, in the ancient world, everybody used these pillars, right? and they really had a sacred building. This is the Parthenon. And these pillars have been standing for 2,000 469 years. Think about that. And so when Jesus is saying, you're going to be a pillar in my temple, he's saying, you're going to have a position, a place with me in relationship with God that can never be broken. And, and it gives it a sense of permanence, stability, strength, assurance, and confidence 
that you are right with God. No matter what happens, it represents an unshakable confidence in our standing with God, that God has a grip on your life, and that his goodness and love is going to prevail. I want to ask you right now a really personal question. Do you personally have confidence in your relationship with God? Do you have confidence that if you were to stand before God today, that you are in a right relationship with God. When I was in high school, I had a good friend of mine who became a Christian, and he started to kind of talk to me about Jesus. But in it, he kind of asked me, he's like, Ryan, are you confident that you and God are in relationship? And he wasn't trying to convince me that I wasn't, which is important. He wasn't trying to convince me I wasn't. He was asking me, based on what you see here in the Bible, and we were looking at Bible passages, do you have confidence that you're forgiven for your sin, that you and God are right? And you know what I told him? I go, I believe there's a God, but I don't believe that if I were to die today, I would be with him forever because I don't really have a relationship with him. I told my friend, I don't think about God ever, except when you talk about him. I mean, he's like not a part of my life. He's never here. Now, here's the important thing about that. Jesus wants you to have absolute pillar confidence that you and God are right with each other. And that you have relationship with him. That's what this represents between me and my wife. It's this precious metal. And it symbolizes the bond of her commitment and love to me. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Do you have that with God? Some of us don't. And this morning, I want to help you get to that place where you can have a moment to invite God into your life. And to know in your heart of hearts that you and God are at peace Listen to what the scriptures say here. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Let's read that again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But watch this. But whoever rejects the Son, you could also say ignores the Son. You don't reject Jesus, you just ignore him like I was. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's Wrath remains on them. Now that sounds harsh, but this is the contrast to the pillar. It is, this is the imagery. The pillar is firm. If you were to come in there and hose it down and clean that thing up, in fact, one of the great Persian kings, I think it was Xerxes, when he raided that temple that sits in Greece, he burned it, set it on fire to cleanse it, and the pillar stood. Now check this out. When you come to clean the temple, those pillars will stand. Jesus is coming to cleanse the world of all evil. Can you think of some evil in the world that you would like to see cleansed? Now, I want you to think right now of something evil in the world that if you could snap your fingers, it was gone. Can you draw it to mind right now? Draw something to mind. All right, and just share it with someone next to you. Just share that with someone. Just, just real quick, turn and share one thing. Boom. Snap your fingers. This evil is gone forever. What would it be? Wrath is the Bible's word to describe God's hatred of sin in the world. And aren't we glad that God hates sin? Aren't we glad that he hates evil in the world? And he is coming again to cleanse the world of all evil. And that's why Jesus went to the cross to free us from the evil that is in us. And here's what the Bible says, that the evil that is in the world is because there is evil in each one of us. 
And that isn't a degrading of the human dignity. That actually is protecting us from projecting our fear of the evil in the world onto another person. And it frees us to say, no, 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 God, I'm not pointing the finger out there. I'm pointing the finger right here. God, start with me. And the Bible frees us to acknowledge that we all bring contribution to the evil in the world. But if you won't allow God to free you from the evil in your life, when he comes again to free the world from evil, you will be swept away with the evil that is in you. Your pride, your selfishness, our greed, my defensiveness and my whatever you want to, whatever it is, it's all in there. And that's why Christians believe so, is so much as writing on Jesus' death on the cross. Because when Jesus died, he died to free us from that evil that is in all of us. So that when he cleanses the world, we don't get swept with it. Does that make sense? It levels the playing field. This is not a condemnation on us. This is helping us see the spiritual reality of why the world is so broken. Because of the evil that is in all of us. Now, that's good news that God wants to come and cleanse the world, which is why we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, that just takes us to the last one. Here we are, the last one, our identity. So Jesus holds the key to your vindication. He holds the key to your strength. He holds the key to your future. And he holds the key, get this, to your identity. Verse 12, I will write on them the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Now, I want to invite the band to come on out because we're at that point, and so I'm going to cut to the quick on this one. Jesus talks about three names that he's going to write on us. He's going to write on us new names, the name of God, the name of the new city of God, which means we will become citizens of a new kingdom that is bigger and transcendent and is larger than the United States of America. There's a citizenship that we carry, an allegiance that transcends state and country and our politics, right? And it is forever. And then there is the name of Jesus. What is all this talking about? That new name is a way the Bible talks about our new identity. Because some of us find our identity in the things that people have said about us. Some of us have found our identities are locked and trapped in judgments and accusations that people have spoken over us. I remember one time a young woman had been abused at UCSD when I was ministering there. And that abuse had sealed in her heart an identity about herself that she was ugly and worthless because of something that somebody else did to her. Some of us have our identities anchored in our favorite hobby, our sports. Some of us have our identities anchored in our career pursuits, in our achievements, in our stunning good looks. For some of us, that's a big tempting one because we're so good looking. But the truth is, there's more to you than all of that. Listen. That spiritual, supernatural perspective on your identity is that you were created to be in relationship with God and you have a soul. 
You have a transcendent part of you that relishes beauty and that wants to live forever because you were created to live forever with God. But for that to happen, you have to be made new so you can be a part of the new thing that God's bringing. And so the Bible says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means you have received forgiveness. You have allowed Jesus to cleanse you of the evil that defines your life. Listen to this. The new creation has come. The old has gone. And what now? The new is here. Something new has been birthed in us when we surrender to Jesus. And that newness is a new identity, a new way of seeing ourselves as loved, forgiven, rescued people from our own evil. So that when we look on the evil of others, we're not gonna judge them and we're not afraid of them because we see that they are no worse and no better than us. And we see they are in just as much need of God's love as we have. And it frees us to be God's light and salt, to forgive, to bless those who persecute us, to love and encourage those who speak ill of us and to be the goodness of God on this earth. It's not just a good behavior, guys. It's a whole new self that is ready to step into the new world that is coming. Do you have confidence in your relationship with God that you are right with Him? If you don't, I want you to begin to talk to God about that right now as we go into this song. Y'all stand together. So make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing. But all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. So make me a vessel. forget um, 
those 25 years ago when I stood in a room just like this I said, okay, God, I want to let your blood, your death for me, free me from my sin. The truth is, Revelation is a picture of God's victory over evil in the world. The gospel's unique message is that we contribute to that evil and that we can be free from that evil, not because we're a, an amazing person or because we have some special charisma, because then that would create a hierarchy in this new kingdom that's coming. The ones who could do it and the ones who couldn't. The ones who were good enough and the ones who were not good enough. None of us is good enough. And that is a liberating message. Only one is good enough and his name is Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus overcame the evil that is in us by absorbing it in himself, in his body, in his spirit. What human being can absorb the evil of the entire world? Nobody but the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God himself on the cross dying to free us from the evil within us, to make us new. And if you want to know that you are free from that evil, and that it no longer defines you, that it is on its way out, and that you have peace with God, and that a new power is in your life to bring goodness and forgiveness and peace and joy to your marriage, to your friendships, to your family, your life in this world, and you want to surrender to Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that right now, right here in this room. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Just take a moment and just acknowledge Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I acknowledge you. If you can take that first step right now, then you can take the next. If you can just say, Jesus, I acknowledge you. Help me believe in you. I want to receive that freedom from the evil in me. I want to be a part of bringing freedom from evil in the world. I want to accept you as my savior and the leader of my life. If you want that, keep your eyes closed just for a moment. If you want that and you're ready to believe in the spiritual reality of your life, I want to invite you right where you're sitting, just to put your hand in the air. This is between you and God, but as you raise your hand, you are acknowledging before this room that you need God in your life. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you in the back. I see you guys. I see you right there. I see you guys. I see you. I see you. We come together as a church to strengthen each other and to help each other take that next step towards God. Maybe someone invited you this morning. You didn't think you were going to do this, but right now, if you're honest, you want to know that you were right with God and you need to have that peace. Join these others. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I see you in the back left. I, in my back left. I see you, bro. I see you back there. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, yeah, I see you. Up in the front, to my right. I see you three. Okay, if you just raised your hand, and I see in the back left, pray this simple prayer with me. Ready? Just pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I receive you. All right, come on now. We've got to say something here. So say it out loud like you mean it. Jesus, I receive you. I receive your death for me, for my forgiveness, to be set free. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. 
Fill me with your power to bring peace into my life and to the world around me. I dedicate my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's celebrate these guys. Yeah, come on. Yeah, man. You guys, listen. That's a powerful thing. Before you guys leave, if you raise your hand, would you just let us have one moment of praying with you? I have a free gift for you. We're not going to try to sell you a timeshare here in Carlsbad. We just want to pray for you and give you a gift. Please come up. Let us pray for you before you leave. God bless you. I'll see you outside.